Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 15 today. As we continue in our study through the Gospel of Mark, as you're making your way there, I want to ask you a kind of a strange question. Um, you, you ever take a picture with you in a group of people? Uh, and that picture becomes available. Maybe somebody posts it on Facebook or, you know, they, it gets developed and you get the pictures. What's the first thing you do? You look for you, right? I mean, we all do that. We all look for us. I, I just got a picture uh, recently. We're, we're redoing our website at the church. And, um, and all the pictures on there are, you know, the fat Ted. And so I, uh, <laughs> so, well, I lost 40 pounds. It's a small child. And... Um, Anyway, so all the pictures on there, people come, they meet me, they're like, oh, you're Pastor Ted, you, you look different uh, in person. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I lost some weight. So anyway, I'm excited to get the new pictures up on the website, the, th- the thin ones. I got pictures with me and Brenda and all of our kids, and, and, and so when we're all looking at the pictures. We're trying to select the ones that we're going to put on the website, and everybody likes a different picture. And of course, the ones we like are the ones we look good in, you know? And I've discovered that, that I approach the Bible that way too. Uh, and, and I'm sure you're just like me, that when we, when we approach the Bible and we look at the Bible, we want to see ourselves in it. You know, what's it got to say about me? How's this going to pertain to me? And, and unfortunately for us, uh, the picture of us in the Bible, you're never going to find a really good one. Uh, the closest you can come to it is Ephesians 2.1, which says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, the Bible basically saying, apart from Christ, <laughs> you're dead. You, you're really not that attractive. You are flat out dead. In Christ, you know, he made you alive. I mean, it's all, Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the rescuer. Jesus is, is the one that, that just looks good in every picture. You know, us not so much. Um, speaking of rescuing, in, in the spring of 1994, I had for me what was the best day of my career as a firefighter paramedic. Prior to coming into the ministry, I was a, a paramedic firefighter. And, and I had in the spring of 94 the best career day that I've ever had. We got dispatched to a, to a fire at the, um, at the Lakes Country Club. And we were the first unit on scene. My partner and I getting there, we got our turnouts on, we roll up on scene. The house is just consumed with fire. And we get the report that there's victims trapped inside. And so we throw our breathing apparatus on and we, we grab the hose and we start to make attack, make entry into the house. And fire isn't like you see on TV. When you go into a burning building, it's not like you can see anything. You can't see your, your hand in front of your face. And, 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 it's, and it's really hot. Uh, and so you, you have to crawl on the ground where, you know, the, as the smoke banks down, you can, you have the best chance of seeing down low on the ground and it's the coolest down on the ground. It's still two or three hundred degrees down there. And so you're crawling in and so my partner and I, we're going in, dragging this hose line and, and we're looking for the seat of the fire and we're also looking for the, the victims, the supposed victims that are supposed to be in there. And so as we're crawling in and making our way in, we're in the foyer of this house. We get about 10 or 15 feet inside the house. And we find a gal, unconscious, unresponsive, there in the foyer of the house. We learn later her name's Mrs. Fox. So we we grab Mrs. Fox, unconscious, we drag her out of the building, uh, and, and following our hose line back out, get to the to the door, get outside. We lay her out on the, the lawn there. Uh, she's unconscious, she's unresponsive, and she's in respiratory arrest. She's not breathing. 
And so my partner rips off his, his, his breathing apparatus, goes running to the rig to get our medical equipment, and I start doing mouth-to-mouth on this gal. And before he gets back, just by doing mouth-to-mouth, I, I'm able to resuscitate her, and she regains consciousness, and, and she's coming through. And so I'm talking to her, and I said, who else is inside? Is there anybody else inside? And she, she finally regains enough consciousness to say, uh, yeah, my husband's inside. I said, is there anybody else inside? She says, yeah, my dog's inside. I'm like, okay, lady, which one do you want me to get? No, so, uh, <laughs> so I said, okay, her husband's inside. So my partner and I quickly, we put our breathing apparatus back on. We leave Mrs. Fox there. Nobody else is on scene yet. It's just us and our engine that the respond. We're in our medic rig and the engine from our station on scene. And one of the, the firefighters from our engine has now taken our hose line and he's gone inside. Uh, and he's now in there searching. And so my partner and I, following his hose line, we're going back in there looking for the other victim. And, uh, and so we're, we get about, you know, 15, 20 feet in, and, and, and here comes uh, the, the, our other firefighter who had gone in. He found Mr. Fox. Well, what had happened was the, they threw a, a cigarette in a trash can, in a, a trash can. They thought it was out, obviously, and it caught a fire, and it, it caught the, the contents of the trash can on fire, it caught the bread spread on fire, caught the curtains on fire. And so Mr. Fox had been running back and forth from the kitchen into the, to the bedroom with pots of water trying to extinguish the fire. Uh, and so and the, in the process of doing this, he's not getting, the fire's getting the better of him. It's, it's growing. And fire, as it burns, it, it, it heats the contents of the room. And so the, the, the temperature in the room is, is elevating all the whole time that he's running in and out. And, and pretty soon the contents in the room through the radiant heat they reach their ignition temperature and they burst into flames. Well, when, when this happens in, in certain conditions, you have what's called a flashover. That's when everything in the room bursts into flame all at once. And that's what happened to Mr. Fox as he, on one of his trips, as he's coming back into the bedroom to, to hit this fire, all the, the room flashed over, everything burst into flames, and your, your instinctive action when that happens is you, you take in a big deep breath. Well, Mr. Fox takes in a big old deep breath of, of fire, uh, and collapses right there on the ground in a heap. This is where our, our engineer found him. And so he drags him out. We, we meet up with him. We grab Mr. Fox. We pull him out. I lay him out on the driveway. He's unconscious. He's unresponsive. He's in respiratory arrest. And as I'm, as I'm working him up, I notice that his, he's got extensive burns in his, inside his mouth and down his airway. <coughs> so <clears throat> as, as we're working him up, uh, I discern because of his airway burns, I, I have to intubate him. So I, you know, I take a, a endotracheal tube and I stick it down his trachea to, to intubate him. And, and we call for an airship to meet us at the hospital because we're like two miles away from Eisenhower Medical Center. They've got a landing, a landing pad there. So we call for an airship to meet us there. We call the doctors at the, the hospital. We say, we're bringing this burn victim in. The, ho- the helicopter's going to meet us. Meet us out on the landing pad so that they could stabilize and do what they needed to do. And, and so on. So long story short, we end up getting Mr. Fox stabilized, getting him to the hospital, getting his wife to the hospital. They treat them both. as the, He's flown to the burn center and he's, he's healed. And, and ultimately uh, here he's, he's you know, released and, and goes home. And, and, you know, it was a month long process. But, but there was this, this awesome thing that took place. Now, this is a great picture of what Christ has done for us. 
Now, here in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 15, I told you a couple of weeks ago, we're on holy ground here. This is, this is the work of Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of the sins of the world. He's, he's rescuing uh, not just Mr. and Mrs. Fox, He's rescuing all of us. And He's come to, to give His life as a ransom for many. It's the culmination of the entire Gospel. And the, the, certainly the culmination of the entire Gospel of Mark. The key verse in the Gospel of Mark being Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It's amazing. Paul told Timothy, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am chief. See, the, the, the amazing thing is not just that, that Christ saved us, but that he saved us when really we were not worthy of being saved. I mean, most people, they can at least expect somebody comes to save them, they're going to be grateful for it. We weren't even grateful for it. We were spitting in his face and nailing him to a cross and ridiculing him. And, and, and you know, all of these, the, the torture and, the, and the, the suffering that he endured at the very hands of those who he came to save. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, for me, even, you know, coming home from this call with Mr. and Mrs. Fox, my battalion chief was on scene there saw this unfold, and, and I came back to the fire station with, with the, the ad, adulation and praise of my fellow firefighters, like, hey, Ted, gutsy, gutsy tube, man, that's cool. You know, and I'm eating a bowl of ice cream in the, in the recliner back at the station. My chief writes me up a really nice letter of commendation. Uh, I get a, a sweet paycheck at the end of the week. I mean, I, there's a lot of neat things, a lot of neat benefits. Christ, he comes, dies for the sins of all mankind, and, and, and the, he's ridiculed and shamed and persecuted and, and all of these things to the point of death. Romans 5.8 says this, God demonstrates His own love towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. An amazing, amazing truth. And Hebrews 12.2 tells us that Jesus, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, and you read that, and you you think, what joy is there in in, in suffering and sacrifice, and being crucified? I mean, you know, if the, we say excruciating pain to describe severe pain, we get the word excruciating from the crucifix, from the cross, and so the very epitome of the worst suffering. How can how can Hebrews twelve two tell us that that it was for the joy that was set before him? What's joyous about that? The joy that was set before Christ was the opportunity. To reconcile you and me, fallen man, with, with a holy God. No flesh, no flesh can glory in his presence. Uh, we're all separated from God. And so, so this is the joy that Hebrews 12, 2 talks about. This is the amazing thing that we see here in, in Mark chapter 15. This holy ground of Jesus doing the work that only he can do to reconcile you and me to God. Now, we left off last week in verse 22, and it says this in verse 22 of Mark chapter 15. And they brought him, Jesus, to the place Golgotha, which is translated the place of a skull. Now, geographically, Golgotha is a peak that stands 777 meters high. Uh, it's actually part of a ridge line uh, there in Jerusalem, and it gets its name from its shape. Um, the the uh, the shape of this peak on this ridge line, Golgotha, is actually in the shape 
of a skull. There's a, there's a couple of caves that are, that are burrowed into the face of, of this, this peak. Um, we'll talk more about that in a little bit, but, but the, the way the caves are and the way just, just geographically that it looks, you look at the, at the, the rock face and it resembles a human skull. As a matter of fact, uh, a few years ago, I went to, to Jerusalem and I was there and I was looking upon this place, Golgotha. And it's amazing as you look at it, you know, it just looks like a skull. You can see it. Now, in modern days, the Arabs have actually paved over a large portion at the, at the base of it. And they've kind of uh, obscured part of, of the view that you see and they've made a bus station out of it. And so there's these you know, diesel bus stations going in and out. And, and if, you know, on, on the one hand, you're like, oh man, come on, how could you do that to, to, to Calvary? I mean, just that's the, the Latin name Golgotha is Calvary, which is where we get the name of our church, Calvary Chapel. And, and so you're like, how can you do that? How can you mar this? But then you stop and you think about it. You think, well, what Jesus did on the cross at Calvary really is a, a bus station, so to speak. That's what makes it possible for us to, to, to see God. So you think, well, I guess it fits. But anyway, so Golgotha is this peak. It's in the shape of a skull. It sits uh, along this ridge line at, the, at really the highest point of the ridge line, 777 meters high. And um, this ridge line, it's, it's this elongated ridge, and it starts at about 600 meters high on the south end, and it rises up to about 770 meters, 770 meters on the north end. And along this ridge line actually is where the Temple Mount sits. The Temple Mount sits at about the 740 uh, foot uh, or 740 meter height level. And so, you know, the ridge goes up, the temple's here, kind of dips down, moves back up, and, and you see Golgotha. Um, Golgotha sits northeast of the Damascus Gate, at, at, and, and it sits on top of that. It's actually, Golgotha is part of Mount Moriah. Uh, let me tell you what's significant about that. Uh, the word Moriah actually means ordained by God. And this site was ordained by God for several purposes. First of all, uh, by Jewish tradition, they believe this is the place where God created man. Uh, the Bible says that God created man out of the dirt and that he breathed life into him. And, and so by Jewish tradition, they believe Mount Moriah is the place where Adam was originally formed. It's also the place, according to Genesis chapter 22, uh, and I'll have you turn there. According to Genesis chapter 22, this is, this is where uh, Abraham offered up his son Isaac. This is the picture of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, uh, being offered up for our forgiveness as well. So we turn there, Genesis chapter 22. And it reads this, uh, 18 verses, I'm going to read it for you real quickly. Genesis 22, now it came to pass. After these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which... I shall tell you. God using this prophetically to point to his offering of Jesus Christ for our forgiveness, for the, 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 the offering for the sins of all mankind. Verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, and he took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. 
And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and he saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and, note this, we will come back to you. If you're a note taker, you might just want to circle that word we. It's a, it's a picture of Abraham's faith. God had told him to go offer up his son as a sacrifice. Abraham going obediently to God, trusting in his heart, we're going to come back. God will provide. Verse 6, so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. Get the picture. This is a picture of Christ carrying his cross, the cross being laid on Jesus Christ. And so he lays the, the wood uh, the, the bur- uh, for the burnt offering on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And then he said, Look, the fire for the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And yes, indeed, he did. And that's what we read about in Mark 15. God providing for himself the burnt offering. And so the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he found Isaac, his, or, and he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And so he said, and I would imagine with a great big sigh of relief, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad nor do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And God did not withhold His only Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the sacrifice for your sins and for my sins. God did not withhold Him. Verse 13, Then Abraham lifted his eyes and he looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. (coughs) So Abraham went, and he took the ram, and he offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord Will Provide, as is said to Uh, This day in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And indeed, God did provide in Jesus Christ. It's what we read about today. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven. And he said, by myself, I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so we have the picture here in Mark's Gospel as they bring Jesus to Golgotha, to the place of the skull, It's that place that has been ordained by God, the place where God will offer up His Son. Now, a thousand years later, coming to be the offering for your sins and for my sins. Verse 23. 
says there that uh, they then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. See, here's the deal. The, the Romans used crucifixion as a form of torture and of death. That's, that's, it, was, it was there purely as an in, implement of death. And it was designed to bring death in the slowest possible way. It was designed to be very torturous. And it was designed to accomplish a purpose. Its purpose was to dissuade other would-be criminals from breaking the law. And so they had these posts that were positioned along one of the main roads, uh, just outside the Damascus Gate there in, in Jerusalem. And as people would be coming into Jerusalem, uh, they would pass these poles, and randomly on these poles, they would have criminals who had been sentenced to death. They would carry their crossbeams out, and they would be nailed or tied to the crossbeams and, and pulled up on these existing poles that were positioned along the roadway. And, and they would po- post their sins, their crime, uh, in a, on a plaque that they would stick on the post above their head. And so you, you're coming to Jerusalem to do some business, and maybe, you know, you're of shady character, and you're thinking that you're going to cause some sort of an insurrection or some sort of, you got some malicious intent, and, and you see, you know, they're passing by some guy that's hanging on a, a cross, dying a slow death, and you see why they hauled him up there, and, and you think, I, I, I'm not going to do that, and that's what Rome wanted. So they were killing people left and right. There were thousands of people that were crucified in this way. Uh, and so uh, it would not have been uncommon, and it's not out of the question that Jesus, on the very pole that he would ultimately be crucified on, that he perhaps had walked by it many times, uh, himself knowing that he would hang on that very pole. And so, so the, there was a, a guild, a woman's guild, uh, during this time uh, that existed for the sake of, of showing mercy and, and tenderness. And, and uh, the Psalms speak of some offering someone a strong drink to, to, that they, they can escape their, their trouble, and, and they would apply that, uh, that psalm to what their ministry was. And so they would mix myrrh, which is a narcotic, along with wine, and they would give it to those who were condemned to death. And they would drink this, and it would, it would, it would anesthetize them. It would, it would cause them to be able to go through this, this painful endurance on the cross, uh, having you know, some measure uh, of escape. And so they offered this to Jesus, just as they would offer it to every other prisoner. Jesus refused it. And Jesus didn't refuse it because he's a glutton for punishment or enjoyed pain. Jesus refused it because he wanted to go to the cross clear-headed. Un, unblemished in any way, he wanted to be able to go and, and, and drink the whole cup of God's wrath, uh, without anything to, to, to mitigate that pain, without anything to mitigate that suffering. Hebrews 4.15 tells us this, we, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And see, there are, there are those that are going to suffer and that are going to be persecuted. And Jesus going to the cross knows that there will be for a thousand years, the first thousand years of the church, that there are Christians are going to be persecuted. They're being persecuted indeed to this day. Some people, uh, the, the, the historians talk about being sawn in two. Uh, the, the Christians that were set on fire in Nero's gardens to light his gardens in a, in a sadistic uh, way. 
And Jesus says, you know what, I'm not, they're not going to get the opportunity to drink some sort of a narcotic to deaden their pain and their endurance through that. I'm not going to do that either. I'm going to be able to sympathize with them and their weaknesses. I'm going to be able to comfort them with the comfort they need to be comforted. And I'm going to be able to, to tell my people, there's nothing that you can suffer through that, that I haven't suffered through, that I, a burden that I haven't carried. And we, knowing that we have this great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, it's awesome that we can go to God in that way and trust him with our cares. And so verse 23 tells us that he refused uh, the drink. Continuing, verse 24, And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. This is actually a fulfillment of prophecy. Proverb, or, uh, uh, psalm 22 uh, is actually a, a messianic psalm, and it's pointing to uh, the, uh, the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, amazing when you think about the fact that the psalms were written a thousand years before crucifixion was even invented. And, and as you read, and we, we're going to actually close with Psalm 22 looking a little deeper at it, but, but even then we won't be able to, to look extensively at it. It's a great read for you. I, I commend you to it today to read Psalm 22 in light of what we will read about crucifixion. But, but uh, it, it, it's amazing to consider that the psalmist writes out in such graphic, vivid detail the the what crucifixion is all about it talks about how my hands and my feet have been pierced and how you can count all my bones and how uh, my my joints are, are disjointed and out of place all of these things that crucifixion does and 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 is about and psalm 22 uh prophesying that that would happen uh and so here we have the fulfillment of prophecy verse 25 and now it was the third hour that's 9 a.m and they crucified him And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. Now with him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Many, many scriptures fulfilled, many prophecies fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ. Verse 29, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Now, this is all at once a true statement and a false statement. It's true <coughs> and, and worthy of, of observation that they acknowledged that he saved others. They, here, they're, they're crucifying the king of glory with their self-admitted uh, profession that he saved others. And yet they're, they're, they're crucifying him. So it's true that he saved others. Then the, the second part of it, they say, himself he cannot save. Now on the face of it, we know that that's not true, right? Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's, he's suffering, he's praying. Uh, and and the, Judas comes with those to, to overthrow him. And Peter whips out his sword. He hacks off Malchus's ear, the servant of the high priest. And Jesus tells him, put your sword away, Peter. If I wanted, I could call legions of angels down right now to deliver me. So it's not on the face of it true that Jesus could not save himself. But if you take that statement as a whole, it, it actually, ironically, as a whole, it is true. He saved others. Himself, he cannot save. because, And that's true in the sense that 
if Jesus is to save others, if he's to save you, if he's to save me, then he can't come down from the cross. And I'm so grateful that he didn't come down from the cross because that is what made it possible for him to save us is the work that he did on that cross. Verse 32, they said, Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And this is a lie. Because what happens, ironically, is that Jesus does descend from the cross uh, and he does rise again from the dead. They do see it. They don't believe it. They refuse to believe it. It's been said there's none so blind as those who will not see. You can tell somebody the truth all day long. If they refuse to see, they're not going to see. And they refused to see. And it says to us finally that even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now we know from the other gospel accounts that one of the thieves on the cross actually turned to Jesus at some point and said to him, Remember me when you come into your father's kingdom. It tells us that he rebuked the other criminal and, and, and said, you know, we're here for, deservedly for our sins, but this is, a, this is an innocent man. And he turns to, to Christ to receive salvation. And some would, would see in that a contradiction. And they point to this and they say, hey, you see, Mark's gospel says that those who were crucified with him reviled him. And this other gospel writer says that, no, one of them got saved. See, there's a contradiction there. No, what happened was, and this is important for us to keep in mind, that they both were reviling him. That's the way it started. And at some point, this, this condemned man recognized in his reviling Jesus that, whoa, wait a minute, this is the Christ, this is the Son of the living God, and I'm going to cry out to him for salvation. And, and we all would do well to take that to heart, because remember last week we talked about how Satan works both sides of the fence, and on this side of the fence he's tempting us to sin and leading us into temptation. The moment we succumb and we yield to that temptation, he jumps to the other side of the fence, he begins to condemn us and says, oh, you can't go to God now, you're the sinner, you're horrible. And, and so... We have accounts, you know, that, that we hear about the people who they've lived this life of sin and they think and they, they believe the lies of the Satan that says, it's too late for me. I, I, I've just, I've, 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 there's too much water under the bridge. I've done too much. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It's never too late. It's never too late to turn to the Lord, to cry out to Him. There's a story of a famous atheist who uh, is, you know, on her deathbed and she's saying, Oh, I wish I could have the faith that, that these Christians that I've known can demonstrate. I, I wish I could have that faith. And she's told, Well, you can have that faith. You just need to turn to Christ. And she says, It's too late for me. I've done too much. She went to hell believing that it was too late for her. Oh, I've, re- I've spent my life reviling and persecuting and, and, and calling for the death of Jesus. No, it's never too late. Now, it just tells us simply there in verse 25 that it was the third hour, nine o'clock in the morning, and they crucified Jesus. And you know, you can search all of the Gospels and try and find a detailed account of the crucifixion. You're not going to find it. The, the Gospels don't really go into the details, the horrific details of crucifixion. But the historical narrative is very clear about crucifixion and what it was all about and, and, and all. And, and I, won't, I won't belabor the point, but I think it is helpful for us to understand what Jesus endured for us. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians and it was perfected by the Romans. 
It was designed purely and precisely and only as a means of killing people. And the idea was to kill them as slow and torturously as possible. And so the way, physiologically speaking, that crucifixion works is that that person is nailed to a cross, that nail piercing through the base of their hand, uh, and as it pierces through the base of the hand, it it, it comes uh, there in contact with the median artery. And with this median, or rather with the median nerve. And the median nerve, we all know what that nerve is, because if you ever hit your elbow and your whole hand goes on fire, burns all the way down your arm to the palm of your hand, that's the median nerve. And so as the person would hang on the cross, what would happen is the weight of their body would stretch out and pull down. Their elbows, their shoulders would become dislocated. Uh, Their diaphragm would be stretched out. And, and what would happen is that in order for this person to breathe, they would have to pull themselves up in order to, to, to expel their breath. And that's, that's significant. See, it wasn't, it wasn't to be able to breathe in. You could hang in that, that position and breathe in. But in order to exhale and, to in, and breathe in again, you had to be able to pull yourself up. And every time you would pull on those nails, you would hit that median nerve and it would cause that shooting, searing pain to go all the way through the, the arm and, and into the shoulders. And, and, and it, what, what's significant about this is that I think of the, the Gospels recording Jesus speaking seven times from the cross. And, and, and do you know, physio, just physiologically, how you speak, it's, it, you have to exhale. The, the air has to come out of your lungs, has to travel through your trachea, across your vocal cords, in order to, to make the, the voice that, that, that we have. And so with that in mind, understanding that in order to exhale, Jesus had to pull himself up on those nails and, and hit that median nerve and the excruciating pain that that would cause every single time he did this. And yet one of the things that is recorded in the seven things that Jesus spoke was he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And you think about that the next time that you, th- that you catch yourself saying to God, God, I can forgive them, but it's so painful. What they did to me is so painful for me to forgive them. And Jesus would say, I know. I know. I understand how painful it is to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And so as the person would hang there, they, they, they would slowly suffocate. And, and their heart rate would begin to increase. The lactic acid would begin to be built up. They would have to breathe faster and faster. And they would have to pull themselves up more and more to be able to breathe. And, and this, this system would, would, or this, this, this process would happen until their system systematically shut down. And ultimately what would happen is the heart would either give out uh, or it would rupture. And so what the Romans did to perfect this, because what they found out was that they, the person would die too quickly. Uh, and, and they would suffer for, for many hours or whatever it was, but ultimately uh, they would just be exhausted. And so they would hang there and they would, not, they, you know, they would just die too quickly. So the Romans said, we're going we're gonna to perfect this system so that the length of torture extends longer. So what they did is they installed a seat 
on the a little small uh, seat on the cross. And so what this allowed for was that the person would hang there, go through all of this suffering, but they would have this little seat that they could rest on, which would give them just enough relief so that they would extend the amount of time that they would be able to endure. And it extended the time greatly. As a matter of fact, there's historical examples of people who would endure crucifixion for as long as 13 days. And they would be there exposed to the elements, exposed to the wild animals, and historians are very graphic in their details of how wild dogs and wild animals and birds and and insects would feed upon the living bodies of those who were slowly suffocating to death. And yet they're, they're not yet dead, and so there they are hanging on the cross, subjected to all of these, these animals, slowly eating them away. This is what our Lord went through for us. That He was nailed to that cross, and this is what is happening. This is the process that's going on. Historians tell us that some people would want to hasten death and so they would try and scoot their bottoms off of that little seat and and, and hang down there. And so the Roman guards took to nailing the victim's testicles to the seat so that they could not scoot off the cross. This is the vile, horrible, graphic details of what Jesus went through for our sin. Now, we don't know exactly the, 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 the specific details of what they did. The, the, as I said, the Bible, the Bible doesn't talk about that, but the historians do tell us what crucifixion entailed. And what makes it even worse, I mean, I think about those things, and, and, and I hate it. I hate the fact that as Christians, we hear the story of, of, yeah, Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again. I mean, we hear it's the, center, it's the foundational point of, of, our, of our faith, And yet we've become callous to it. I mean, really, truly, honestly, you you think, yeah, Jesus was crucified. And even me going through the graphic details with you, it's like, oh, yuck, that's kind of bad to to hear. But, you know, okay, I've heard this. I mean, God help us, really. I mean, if I was the only person who ever lived, Christ would have had to go through what he went through for my sin, just my sin alone. I mean, even if I lived just yesterday... Christ would have to die for my sins just from yesterday. And we become just so callous to that. It's like, oh, you know, what, you know whatever. He, yeah. But when you stop and you take a walk with it, you just dwell, you think about, well, what makes Jesus' death even worse is that I caused it. I caused it. I mean, I can't even point to, Ju- oh, Judas, you ratted him out. Or, oh, you horrible Roman guards, look how cruel you are. Or, oh, you wicked Jewish leaders, and look at how... No, I caused his death. You caused his death. We caused his death. Listen to the way Charles Finney puts it. He said, quote, It's a simple thing to say that Jesus died for the sins of the world. It's quite another thing to say that Jesus died for my sin. It is a shocking thought that we can be as indifferent as Pilate, who washed his hands of Jesus, as scheming as Caiaphas, who missed Jesus in his religion, as callous as the soldiers who beat Jesus, as ruthless as the mob who called for the death of Jesus, or as cowardly (coughs) as the disciples who ran away from Jesus. But it wasn't just them, he continues. It was I who nailed Jesus to the tree. Isaiah 53, 6 says this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
That word iniquity, guys, it's, it's, it means literally to bend, to twist, or to distort. And here's what that means. It means because you and I have the tendency to bend and twist and distort the things of God, that it was necessary for Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. Now let me put this in perspective for you. Brenda and I had a front row seat this week to how we as Christians bend, twist, and distort the Word of God to, to fit our own little kingdoms and how we try and make Jesus into, into our own little genie that exists to, to serve me. And, it, and, and it, it's just a horrible thing. that It's a tendency in all of us that, that we have. This, this week, Brenda and I... She gets she gets a call from from this little gal and and she's been a part of our, our life for 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 a lot of years and um, and she in tears is telling Brenda that that she's become pregnant outside of marriage and uh, and Brenda's you know encouraging her and, and ministering to her and, and and she says this she says she says I. I I thought that I could call my dad and get some good advice from him. I've known her dad for 10 years. He calls himself a Christian. Mom calls herself a Christian. Went to church together for years. And everybody in this little girl's life is telling her, you need to have an abortion. You need to, you need to, to get an abortion. You're not ready to have a, a child. And so she thought, you know, I'm going to call my dad. And, you know, just a girl calling her father to tell him she's pregnant is not an easy phone call to make. And so she calls her dad. And her dad tells her, get an abortion. She's not ready to have a kid. Get an abortion. She's in tears. She says, I can't go through with it. I can't do that. He's saying, you, you need to do that. And he's yelling at her. And she, I can't do that. She says, Daddy, it's wrong. The Bible says it's wrong. Psalm 22. Psalm I told you guys to read. Verse 10. Psalmist says very clearly there, The Lord knew me in my mother's womb. She actually quotes this to her father. She's, now, keep this in perspective, guys. This is a scared little girl. I call her a little girl because I'm old. She's, she's, you know, she's obviously old enough. But she's a scared little girl. She calls her dad. She says, Dad, I've gotten myself in trouble. And he says, you know, you need to get an abortion. And she's like, I can't possibly go through that. And I can't believe you're telling me to do that. And her dad says, Lo, God will forgive you. And, and everything will be all right. And she's like, well, the Bible says it's wrong. It says, you know, that this, this is, a, he's saying, you know, no, it's not a baby. It's a lump of tissue. It's not a baby. That's a lie from the pit of hell. The Psalm 22's hand says, no, 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 this is a baby. And she says, oh, I can't do this. She tells her dad this. And her dad says to her, <clears throat> oh, you know, at what point did he know, did he know it, the psalmist in his mother's womb? Because, you know, at a certain point before that, it's just, it's just a lump of tissue. Now listen, I, I want you guys to hear me. I recognize, I mean, statistically speaking, that fully half or more of you women in this room have perhaps made this decision and gone through with an abortion yourself. And what I want you to hear from me is that 
God is loving. He is merciful. He is forgiving. And, and you do have the, the, the covering grace and the forgiveness of Christ. Absolutely you have that. But can I tell you, when you're making the decision, as this girl is making this decision, that if you want to twist and manipulate Scripture some way, to say that God's okay with it, and everything's going to be fine, and you can go get the, 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 this abortion, because God's a gracious and merciful and loving and forgiving God, I'm going to tell you that that's a lie from Satan. It's wrong. It's not right. And, and, and this this... This family I'm seeing making these decisions and, and going down this, this path, and it's not right. I go and I talk with the, the, the father of this child, and he has the audacity to tell me, God knows that she's not ready for this, and God knows I'm not ready for this, and God's forgiving, and God's merciful, and God's forgiving, and, and, and it's not a baby, and I'm like, that's a lie from the pit of hell. It is a baby, and you're making the wrong choice. And, and he's like, well, you know, you don't have to live with the consequences. You, you, she's got to live with the consequences and I've got to live with the consequences. I just want to put my fist through the back of his head at that point. I'm like, that is a, that's baloney. You don't have to live with the consequences. You're bailing on this little girl and you're telling her if she doesn't have an abortion that, that, that she, you're done with her and that she can just be gone and don't ever call you again. But then you have the audacity to tell her, but if you'll have an abortion, if you kill the baby, then, oh, I love you and we can get married and we can have other children. I'm like, how sadistic is that? You're, are you kidding me? You're having this conversation. And he goes, well, you know, it's, you, can, you can encourage her to have the baby all you want. You don't have to live with it. You're not going to be there for her. And forgive me. I just said, how the hell do you know? You don't know me. You don't know what I'm going to do. And I looked this kid in the eye and I said, someone has to man up. It's, if you're not going to be the man here, someone's got to man up and take care of this kid. If you're not going to take care of that kid, I'll make sure that kid's taken care of. I'm a little upset about this, as you can tell. <laughs> but uh, but the, the, thing that it, the thing that it strikes me, and, and, I, and I, God, I, I, I tell you, look, I know this family. I know this guy. And it breaks my heart when I see people bend and distort and twist the Word of God to fit their agendas when it's not true. And it's what we do. We bend and we twist things and we, we wink at the scriptures that are tough and that we don't want to hear. And, and then we cherry pick those scriptures that we like and we say, oh, this, is, this one's good. That one, oh, God's loving. He's merciful. I, don't, I, I, can, I can bail on that one. That's, that is not the heart of the Father. You know, Jesus did not suffer and die on the cross so that we can live like hell and hope to go to heaven. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you have to earn your, your, your salvation, that you have to earn a right standing with God. I'm not saying that because you can't get there from here. You're like Mr. and Mrs. Fox. I'm like Mr. and Mrs. Fox. I'm dead. I'm laying in that building and unless Jesus Christ comes and lays his life down, there's nothing I can do to be right with God. That's not my point. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that there's something very, very wrong when we as Christians are going to say, you know what? All that Jesus went through on the cross is so that I can live like hell and go to heaven. And, and, and while we say that out loud and go, that's not, that's not something that, that I would say, it's the way that I live a lot of the times. And I, I think about this, the, the, the prophet Jeremiah. He 
sat in a place called Jeremiah's Grotto. Jeremiah's Grotto is one of the caves that makes up the face of Golgotha. Okay? And Jeremiah sat in one of those caves that makes up the eye socket of, of, of this place, Golgotha. And, and as you sit in the mouth of that cave, it, it has this commanding view of the whole area of Jerusalem. And sitting in that skull, he wrote the book of Lamentations. And as he wrote the book of Lamentations, uh, it, it says this in, in verse 12, Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? This is what he says. He says, he's looking out at at the nation of Jerusalem. He's looking at all of the problems that they're suffering, that their sin and their twisting of the scriptures has gotten them into problems, has gotten them into trouble. Now they're suffering at the hands of God, his judgment. And he looks out at them and they're going around in in, in their life and, and, and like it's business as usual. And he looks at this and he says, is it nothing to you, all of you who pass by? And sometimes I just want to scream at the top of my lungs. I just want to say, is it nothing to you? I want to say to this father, is it nothing to you? That what Jesus did on the cross and you're just going to tell your little girl that she should go out and do something that's going to scar her for the rest of the life and kill the rest of her life and it's going to kill your granddaughter or your grandson? Is that nothing to you? Is it nothing to you that, that our sins are separating us from God? Is it nothing to us that Jesus endured incredible, horrible suffering for our sin? Is it nothing to us? Is it nothing to us that our nation has gone insane, that we think up is down and that we think down is up? And, and I, you know, it's just, it's nuts. It's crazy. And we act like it's nothing. We go through our lives like it's nothing. Isaiah says this, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save you, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Now I want you to think about that. Our iniquity has separated us from God. Look at verse 33. Keep that in your mind. How our iniquities have separated us from God. Verse 33 says, Now when the sixth hour had come, that's high noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. It's pitch black because God's dealing with sin here. This is judgment. And by the way, this could not have been a lunar eclipse because this is uh, during the, the, the time of the Passover when the moon and the... It was full moon. So the, the moon and the sun are in, in different parts of, of, of the, the, the sky here. They're, they're on different sides of the earth. It is physically impossible for it to be a, a lunar eclipse. What was it? It was the very hand of God blotting out the, the, the sun as he deals with sin. And verse 34, this is significant in the idea of separating ourselves or being separated from God, our sin separating us from God. Verse 34 says, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, 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 lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'll think on that. Jesus was not afraid of anything. 
Jesus was asleep in the bow of the boat when commercial fishermen, seasoned fishermen, were crying like little girls saying, we're going to die, we're going to die. Don't you care that we're going to die? He wasn't afraid. He was asleep. He was totally at peace. He was totally at peace when he stood before before Pilate and when he stood before Herod he didn't speak a word Pilate said don't you realize I can put you to death or I can free you he didn't say a word he's like unless the father gave you your power you couldn't do anything I mean he's just completely at peace he goes through a scourging he opens not his mouth he's completely at peace there's nothing that scares him they say, hey, we don't have money to pay our taxes, Jesus, the, the, the temple tax. We've got to have money. He's like, go fishing. You'll find the money in the mouth of the fish. Don't bother me. It's, everything's cool. I mean, nothing flaps this guy. He's not afraid of anything. And now we read in verse 34, he's terrified. And I want us to take note of what terrified Jesus. What terrified him was being separated from God. And, and I will just be vulnerable myself to tell you that I go through life terrified about a lot of different things, but usually what doesn't terrify me is being separated from God. The only thing that terrified Jesus, and usually I don't bat an eye about it. I'm going to sit on the the, the couch and watch three hours of television, four hours of television, take this crap into my head, and I'm, yeah, I said it, okay, so write me an email. So, uh, you know, and and I take this stuff in, and and I just, and further and further, I'm separating myself from God, and then people are like, you know, we just, we don't care, it doesn't bother us. Jesus, he told Martha, 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 you're worried about many things, but only one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. And guys, so many times we, we get worried about, you know, all these other different things, but we don't worry about the one thing that we should be worried about, the only thing that Jesus ever worried about, and that is being separated from God. Now, I gotta bring this thing to a close, and, and, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna have you guys turn over to, to Psalm 22. And as you're making your way there, let me just say this. That Pilate, Psalm 22, Pilate asked a question of the Jews when he had Jesus before him, and he said, What do you want me to do with him who you call the King of the Jews? And that is the question that every single one of us needs to answer. And and as we're drawing to a close, I I just want, what am I going to leave you with? What do I want you to walk out these doors chewing on? I want you to chew on this question, what are you going to do with Jesus? And what are you going to do with His death, His burial, and His resurrection? What are you going to do with His substitutionary death in your place? Are you going to be one of those people that manipulates and twists and winks at Scripture and and says, you know, Jesus is my genie who exists to to make my life good and to to be there for me and, and oh, He's going to overlook my sin and me and Jesus, we're good and wink, wink, Jesus, just look the other way here while I go and and kill my baby or whatever it is and, and, you know, okay, Jesus is going to forgive me. Are you you Is that what you're going to do with Jesus or are you going to recognize wait, 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 wait my sin is so horrible so heinous so awful that Jesus had to die a, a, a miserable excruciating death substitutionary death in my place and I'm going to recognize well Jesus didn't endure the cross so that I can live like hell and go to heaven he came to rescue me from the fire of hell and that means I surrender to him which of these Jesuses are you going to follow now here in Psalm 22 
We read the familiar beginning of it. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the verse we left off on. This is what Jesus says from the cross. This is a prophetic psalm. He says, why are you so far from helping me? And from the the words of my groaning, he says, oh my God, I cry out in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night session, uh, the night season, and am not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you, they trusted, and you delivered them. And they cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. Verse 6, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and a despised of the people. If you're a note taker, circle that word worm. Next to it, write this. The word is totla, T-O-W-L-A. It's a Hebrew word. Tola means worm, literally, it's a worm. And the interesting thing about the Tola worm is this, that in order to reproduce, the Tola worm affixes itself to a tree, and there in that place where it affixes itself, it covers and protects its offspring. And it dies in that place, and in death it gives life to its offspring as they feed on its body. You say, well, that's yucky. Here's what Jesus says, John 6, 54, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now there's more to this word tola. Not only does it mean worm, but it also means scarlet. See, the people had discovered that when you crush the tola worm, that it's useful for, for staining, for dyeing fabric. That, you, that in crushing the tola worm, you can dye fabric a scarlet color. And so any fabric that was scarlet color came from the crushing of the tola worm. Well, how did they discover this? Well, you see, as the worm dies there on the tree, and as its young feeds on it, it leaves a scarlet mark. And that scarlet mark will sit there on the tree for three days. And in the third day, it turns white. And it flakes off, and it floats off of that tree. Now it's gone, it's clean, it's removed. Isaiah 118 tells us this, Come now, God speaking to us, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your, skin, your sins are like scarlet, tola, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. And so I leave you the question, what are you going to do with Jesus and his death on the cross? Is Jesus' death on the cross in your place, your license to live any way you darn well please? Or are you going to recognize that Jesus gave his life on the cross for you. And he calls you to feed upon him. Not upon these other things, these other whims, these other hungers and, and thirsts that we have. But we were called to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And I pray that's the decision that you make this week. That we're not going to take for granted the Lord's sacrifice for us. But we're going to take hold of what Jesus has already taken hold of for us. Amen.